This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 341, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel Glass, welcoming you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on the Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. How y'all doing today? Um, On this episode, this show, I am going to continue, this is part two of... My uh, Tales from the Road saga about the Warped Tour. So last last session, last week, we got into a whole bunch of sort of an int- interesting stories about what it was like being on the Warped Tour, especially for a young swing band, being on a mostly punk rock oriented tour with a bunch of eclectic bunch of bands barreling down the road in all manner of crazy states of mind, in all kinds of crazy vehicles. As I mentioned, it was a little bit like the Road Warrior or something, or kind of a, a traveling sideshow circus. Uh, they called it Punk Rock Summer Camp. So if you enjoyed that little expose, or if you yourself have played on the Warp Tour, if you've gone to the Warp Tour, if you saw Royal Crown Review on the Warp Tour, you have some idea of what I'm talking about. And of course, as I mentioned, the Warp Tour is sort of the longest-running uh, traveling tour in in the U.S. It's been going now for, I think, 22 years. Again, that is due to a highly flexible and creative business model that keeps the costs down. It integrates whatever are the upcoming bands, whatever the newest style is. So it keeps the um, and and it keeps the costs cheap. All of those things do through very unorthodox venues and, you know, all these other things that we talked about. So what that means is that for every young generation of, you know, teen fan and young 20-something fan coming up that are into whatever the newest sort of punk rock oriented kinds of of music are, it's affordable for them to go to the Warp Tour. They have a, a complete kind of lifestyle experience because it's not just music. There's the athletes, you know, you have skaters and inline skaters and BMXers and uh, all kinds of stuff, motocross bikers doing crazy tricks. So all of that attracts people, vans being the sponsor there. You know, it's all about the, the, the surfer skater lifestyle or the fantasy of that lifestyle. Although we being on the tour got to kind of enjoy the fantasy for better and for worse, as, as I talked a lot about in the last in the last session. So I want to pick up today, I'm going to talk about Royal Crown Review's experiences going with this tour to a bunch of international destinations. But before I do, I want to tell another really interesting story about how this tour benefited our career, uh, Royal Crown Review's career, that is. We, as I mentioned, were, uh, we were on Warner Brothers, but we, we had this very unorthodox career that was sort of one part DIY success outside the industry and another part we were sort of trying to get into the industry. And while this had benefited the band, it also made our lives somewhat difficult. And I'll sort of talk a little bit about record labels at this point, 
as I had mentioned in the last session, Royal Crown Review, prior to my joining the band, I, I joined along with our bass player, Vaco Lepisto. Both of us joined in 1994, and we replaced two guys in the band who had, um, they had managed the band previously. The band had been on their record label. Uh, they were in a punk rock band called Youth Brigade, and they were uh, they had started Royal Crown along with Eddie, our singer, and Mondo and James, our guitar player, Mondo the tenor player. They'd sort of started it as a side project from their punk rock band. So for the first five years that Royal Crown Review was in existence, um, they were on this uh, this label that was run by the Stern Brothers, who who were in Youth Brigade. It was a punk rock label, and Royal Crown's first album was on that label. Royal Crown had had some big success uh, right around the time I joined, 1993-1994, with the film The Mask, the Jim Carrey movie. And that's how a lot of people know about Royal Crown Review is from our song Hey Pachuco that was featured in the film The Mask. And pretty much, you know, people go, what band, huh? And I say, have you seen The Mask? Yeah. Oh, that swing dance scene where Cameron Diaz and Jim Carrey do their thing at the Club Coco Bongo. That band is Royal Crown Review, and then people go, ah, Royal Crown Review. Oh, okay, I get it. So we were sort of this band that everybody had heard this song, but nobody really knew who the band was, at least on a mainstream level. So things progress. I join the band, the other guys from the punk rock band. There's a a parting of the ways. Won't go into all the details about that. But um, needless to say, we're now free agents. And by 1995, we got signed to Warner Brothers. So that's cool, except that (laughs) we also, our manager uh, at the time, who also manages the Brian Setzer Orchestra, uh, was affiliated with Interscope Records, another major label, different than than Warner Brothers. And how this all ties back into the Warp Tour is that we, we cut this record called Barflies at the Beach, which was kind of a... Royal Crown Review style send-up of the Benny Goodman classic tune, Sing, Sing, Sing. And um, we actually had some quite good success with this, with this song, Bar Flies at the Beach. Uh, it, it came out on a compilation album, which was on Interscope. Uh, and it was on, essentially affiliated with our, our, our new manager, uh, the, the one who also manages Brian Setzer, and he had his own label, which was called Surf Dog. So the studio version of Barflies at the Beach uh, comes out, and um, and uh, uh, it's on this compilation album, Music for Our Mother Oceans. Now, uh, our manager, Dave Kaplan, his label was called Surf Dog, uh, he's our ex-manager now, but at the time he was managing the band through sort of this pivotal period of our career. Uh, surf Dog is kind of, he was a surfer. And so Surf Dog, this this record was called Music for Our Mother Oceans. And it was a whole bunch of bands doing music about, essentially about the ocean as a way to sort of raise money and awareness for surfing and environmental ocean causes and that kind of stuff. So we did this tune called Barflies at the Beach, and Eddie, our singer, wrote some really great lyrics to the tune of Sing 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 about these guys that are in a bar all day and what's going to happen when they get dragged out into the sunlight and they go down to the beach. So let's hear just a few seconds of the studio version of Barflies at the Beach so you can get a sense of, you know, how we approach this song. And it was fun. It was a really fun 
kind of a concept. And Eddie's rap is really great, very kind of New York, wise guy, tough guy kind of thing. So here's Royal Crown Review, Barflies at the Beach. All right, you bums, listen up. Suntan oil don't go good with a three-piece suit, you know, makes it all oily and stupid looking. So, I know I just said a lot about record labels, but I've, I've launched the names of three different record labels, Warner Brothers, Interscope, and Surf Dog. And they all have to do with this song, Barflies at the Beach, and it all has to do with the Warp Tour. So, we go on the Warp Tour, and things are going really well for us. We're, we're, we were listed as one of the headlining bands in 1997. We're chugging along down the road, crisscrossing the U.S. Uh, Our name, our stature is going up. A lot of people are seeing the band. A lot of people are blown away by how we brought together, you know, swing music and and other styles of roots music and blended it with kind of a heavier, very in-your-face, high-energy kind of a sound. We had this cool retro style going. And in the midst of this tour where, you know, a lot of the bands, most of the bands are just kind of fall out of bed in your vans and your board shorts and put on your your electric guitar and your electric bass and go out and scream and play really loud for 30 minutes. We're showing up with an upright bass and a hollow body guitar. Our hair is slicked back. We're wearing gabardine suits. And, you know, we got a three-horn section. And we're bringing this whole in-your-face kind of a thing. And for those who maybe didn't listen to the last session, well, you heard it with Barflies at the Beach. I'll play you now just another small example of our live album caught in the act so you can kind of hear what our live presentation was like so check this out royal crown review live this is what we sounded like on the warp tour in So Royal Crown Review, all cylinders firing, lots of, you know, great feedback, things are happening, we're selling a ton of merch at the shows, the buzz is buzzing. And uh, we get a call from our manager saying, hey guys, when you get to Panama City, Florida, we're going to come down there with a crew, and we're going to shoot a, because uh, we were of course doing barflies at the beach at every show, we're going to shoot barflies at the beach, and... Um, you know, with a 
your live performance at the Warped Tour, capturing all that. And we're also going to go to the beach because Panama City was right near the beach. And we're going to have you guys cruising around on the beach, just being goofy. And we're going to capture your live performance. And we're going to make a video for Barflies at the beach. So we're excited about that. That's cool. The day comes. We're in Panama City, Florida. It's brutally hot. We actually did the song twice um, in front of the audience. And uh, just so we could, you know, have enough footage, basically. So there's guys running around the stage filming. And amazingly, uh, there is footage of this. Somebody posted our entire performance from Panama City, Florida. So if you want to see the whole show, including both versions of Barflies, um, there's a link. There will be a link to it in the show notes uh, for this show. And you can go check it out for yourself. Um, amazingly at the end of the second performance eddie nichols our singer who is one of the great performers and singers i've ever worked with and i've worked with a lot of people he um in addition to being a great singer and a songwriter and uh, a lyricist uh he he was also an, a f- fantastic dancer and eddie didn't really talk about this too much but his mother um had been and, and his stepmother had been both of them had been very involved in the world of ballet. And he had grown up in New York City and was a, a pretty incredible, had a lot of ballet training, which of course didn't really go too well with his tough guy persona that that he would eventually, uh, you know, foster. But he would do these amazing acrobatic moves on stage, Eddie. He would drop into the splits all the time. And on this particular final performance of Barflies at the Beach, he does a double spin dropping into the splits and pops right back up again. And it was like the perfect move for the, you know, for the, for the cameras, right? So uh, we have a great time. We film this video and I'll put, I'll actually put up the video as well in the show notes so you can see, how, you know, the video for the studio version and how all the footage was cut together. So this video then, as we're traveling along, begins to take on a life of its own. It gets vi- edited put together, and uh, it, it goes to um, MTV, of course, was still showing music videos and making its bread and butter from showing music videos back in 1997. And one of the things that they decided to do, MTV, they created a show that was called 12 Angry Viewers. I don't know if anybody out there remembers that show. It wasn't around for very long, but it was a great idea. The idea was you would assemble 12 average MTV viewers and bring them together for one week. And what they would do is, it was a, I think it was a half-hour show, each night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the first four nights of the week, they would watch three videos, these 12 angry viewers, in front of, I think it was in front of a live audience, and, you know, they were in the MTV studios, and they would discuss the videos, and they would rate the videos, and they would choose a winner for each night. And on Friday, the final, you know, night of the week, they would, from the previous four winners, choose the winner for the week. And and all of these were um, young bands, up-and-coming bands, and the winner of the week would then the following week get heavy airplay on MTV. Well, guess whose video won <laughs> the entire week of 12 Angry Viewers? Little upstart Royal Crown Review our video from Panama City, Florida, and, you know, Barflies at the Beach. So for a week, we got very heavy airplay on MTV. And 
again, this was, this was a beautiful beginning. And it was, uh, you know, they, this was right when the, the retro swing thing was, was considered, still considered to be very cool. So MTV was running the instrumental parts of Barflies at the Beach, the sort of the sing, sing, sing motif. You know, that, that was the, the, the element of sing, sing, sing we had quote unquote borrowed for, for this tune, Barflies at the Beach. They were running that underneath as sort of, um, you know, background type music, underscore music for everything. Uh, when the, the VJs would talk about whatever, calendar, things that were upcoming. So every time I turn on MTV, of course, we're on the road watching all this transpire, you know, not believing our good luck. So, okay, we think, man, this is it. We're now poised for stardom and everything is going to be wonderful. Well, remember those three different record labels that I mentioned at the beginning of, of this session a few minutes back. Uh, here's where things go wrong in the music business and where, you know, you just want to shoot yourself in the face sometimes because here's an amazing opportunity. We're poised for, you know, some a, a big step up in, in, in where we're headed in our career with the excitement and the buzz around the band. Everybody's talking about this band and this, this song. And... What ends up happening is that, you know, we were on the Warner Brothers record label, but the song Barflies at the Beach was not on our Warner Brothers album because our Warner Brothers album, Muggsy's Move, had come out earlier the previous year, 1996, and it wasn't until later in 96 that we actually recorded the studio version of Barflies at the Beach. So the studio version of Barflies at the Beach was on the Interscope compilation Music for Our Mother Oceans. The live version of Barflies at the Beach, which was also recorded in 1996, was on our live album Caught in the Act, which was on Surf Dog Records. So what that meant is that we had a quote-unquote a hit on MTV, a hit video, and Neither our record label, Warner Brothers, nor Surf Dog, uh, well, Surf Dog was a small label, but Interscope, which was another behemoth label, neither Warner Brothers nor Interscope was willing to promote, to really actively get behind the song, which is what has to happen when something breaks out on MTV. You got to have money put behind it to then push the band to the next level. And so, you know, it withered on the vine and died after a few weeks. And in essence, you know, I won't go into this part of the story, but one of the great, my great regrets or sadnesses in in being a part of Royal Crown Review is that we ended up, you know, really being the first band of sort of the retro swing movement, the pioneers, the ones that a lot of the other bands that came up after us copied our, you know, blueprint that we laid down for the style of music, the type of song that that would be covered, the the uh, the different, uh, um, you know, the aesthetic look, all of that. And because we didn't have the support at the right moments, at the pivotal moments, we lost out. And other bands kind of walked through those doors that we opened. And we had spent five years before I even joined the band, kind of getting the idea out there. And then when I joined the band, and especially when we, we got signed to Warner Brothers, things kicked up. And we had done, you know, two years of hard touring, even before the Warp Tour, uh, in RVs and vans, playing in cities to five people who then went out and told all their friends and putting our heart and souls into a show for five people or 10 people or 50 people or even, you know, 200, 400. It, you know, we weren't 
for the amount of work we were doing, uh, it was, it was, the rewards were, were minimal. So, you know, that is life in the music business. But the Warp Tour always holds a special place in my heart, and we really were able to document it with this, this video uh, and, uh, and, and this song, uh, Barflies at the Beach. And uh, so, you know, I will say to Warner Brothers' credit that in all further pressings of our album Muggsy's Move, they did add Barflies to the Beach to that uh, album. So if you, if you find that album or you seek that album, um, some copies will have Barflies at the Beach, some, some copies won't. But of course, it was a day late and a dollar short. Uh, by the time they got around to doing that, and uh, they just they just didn't get it. We were too far ahead of the curve, and by the time they they said, "Oh, this swing thing's happening," um, you know, we were we were we were an also ran in our own game. But this that is that is for another session. Um, I'm talking about the Warp Tour today. So one of the benefits, as I mentioned in the last session, or I don't know, I guess you could say it was a benefit. It cer- certainly did end up being a benefit for us. But the Warp Tour was in this experimental phase, and they were trying all kinds of things, and we were the beneficiaries of that. And one of the things that they, they tried was they said, well, why don't we take this, this, this crazy road show, um, you know, over to Europe and see how that does. And so um, this would have been later in the summer of 1997. Uh, essentially, we we had done uh, the U.S. tour, which was sort of July into August. And later that same month, August of 1997, we headed over to Europe and did uh, basically the Warp Tour brought you know, we played a lot of the big European festivals. So uh, there was one called Pukel Pop. Um, there was the Reading Festival in in England. I think Pukel Pop was um, in in uh, the the Benelux region, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg. You know that that part of um, of Europe. Uh, there was the Lowlands Festival, and then we did play a variety of other kinds of venues in France and Italy. Uh, I think we were out there for about uh, two weeks, two to three weeks. And if 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 any of you have ever, you know, toured in Europe, it's a bit of a different experience than it is in the United States. They have tour buses, but instead of sort of having one long bus that has you know, a lounge at the front where you get on, a lounge at the back, and then bunks in the middle, uh, sort of like a submarine. It's a it's a double-decker bus. The, the, at least at this time, the tour buses in Europe were, were two levels. So you do your, you know, hanging out, eating, socializing, sitting on benches on the first level, and the bunks are on uh, the upper level. And it's, you know, at the time, it was a bit more primitive than the tour buses we had uh, in the U.S. But of course, if you listen to the session that I talk about the previous session about our tour bus. We were, we had 22 people sleeping on a tour bus that, that should have slept about, you know, 18 max, maybe 15 in a more comfortable environment. So, uh, we, we head over to Europe We're we're starting to do these festivals and the Warp Tour would bring its own, uh, you know, there were so many bands on it. It, it was a scaled-down version of the U.S. version. There was maybe 10 bands. Well, we would sort of inhabit these 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 tents and sort of take over one of these tents. So, um, you know, European summer festivals are incredible. 
um, now with you know Bonnaroo and and uh, these kinds of festivals, um, they they resemble the European festivals. But in Europe, you know, everybody has the whole month off of August or whatever. They they they, they all the kids, you know, young adults go camping. Um, these festivals are in huge fields that are acres big. They set up tents that can house. Uh, upwards of, you know, 20 or 30,000 people underneath a single big top type tent. And so it's, and they have many of these tents of different sizes scattered around the, 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 the grounds of the festival and people camp. It's very festive. So, you know, we, as the Warped Tour, we would, we would hit on these, these different things. And it was pretty cool because on one of the festivals, you know, of course you get to go to all the main stages and on one of the festivals, um, uh, one of the main tents uh, with the main headlining acts of the festival, the two, it was Veruca Salt, I don't know if you remember them, another 90s band, uh, Beck and the Foo Fighters. And um, this, you know, Beck was great. Um, of course, he had he had just recently hit with his whole two tables and a microphone, uh, you know, uh, song. Um, and uh, great band Joey Warrenker on drums, who, by the way, used to, uh, have his lesson right before me at uh, at at Freddie Gruber's house. So um, Joey's an amazing drummer. He joined REM when when their drummer was no longer able to play. And I just recently saw him again. Uh, he was he's been touring with Roger Waters, playing an amazing, doing an amazing job of replicating all of the Nick Mason drum parts um, and the Pink Floyd material. So Joey was 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 out with Beck. And, and the Foo Fighters played, and I had just gotten their second album, The Color and the Shape, which is still one of my, probably one of my favorite albums of the last 20 years. And uh, Taylor Hawkins had literally just joined the band. So um, I was kind of hanging with him, and we were watching Beck. And, you know, these are the kind of cool experiences you have when you, when you go on these kinds of big festivals, is you, you can see all kinds of amazing bands. You can often just go on the side of the stage and watch and hang out backstage with lots of other musicians. I remember one time I had this really killer hang with Adrian Young from No Doubt, in uh, the drummer from No Doubt in Australia, and uh, he was really drunk, as often happens when you're on the road, uh, and poured out his life story to me. I'm sure he does not remember anything. I really don't even remember what we talked about, but it, 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 it's, you know, it's the road. So Europe was, was great, although it was, it was tough. And it was especially tough for me because I got this, you know, eye infection, uh, while we were out there. I got, uh, when I was in high school, I got hit in the eye with a tennis ball, uh, from very close range. I was in PE, we were playing tennis. My partner who was behind me, uh, I was at the net and the serve comes over the net and uh, it goes long. So I turn around thinking, okay. And as I turn around, he decides to hit it back across the net as hard as he could. And it hit me in the eye. So from the time I was about 17, I had an abrasion on my, on the surface of my eye and it would get irritated because my eye would get dried out. And, uh, it ended up getting infected while we were in Europe on the Warp Tour. And uh, this was the most painful, one of the most painful experiences I've ever had in my life. My, my The eye got so infected that I couldn't even 
if I moved it at all, it was like there was a piece of glass in my eyeball and would just cause the most incredible pain. And of course, our eye is moving constantly all the time. So what happened was uh, my eye literally, with all the tears and other stuff it was producing, it was it swelled shut. And the other eye, which was my right eye, was, um, you know, because both eyes obviously move at the same time. So it sort of sympathetically also swelled shut. So both of my eyes swelled shut and I was just in the worst pain. I was lying in my bunk on the top level of the double-decker bus, you know, just all alone in the world because, of course, you know, we didn't, our band Royal Crown Review, I think I mentioned, we were like a street gang, and it was all good when we went to hit the stage, but, uh, you know, there was, um, it wasn't exactly, it was a bunch of, you know, 20-something guys, so nobody was sort of sitting there holding my hand or asking how I was doing. You know, somebody would show up every few hours and, like, put down a plate with a cold sandwich and some potato chips and go, hey, here, go buy you some food. Hope you're all right. Bye. And, you know, go back to doing whatever they were doing. So uh, we ended up actually having to cancel one of the shows. Uh, it was a show in Spain at a bull ring. At, and the guys were mad at me because here was an opportunity to, to play in a bull ring in Spain. And uh, and we had to cancel it because of, of my eye. Ironically, RCR would end up having a really great career in Spain all through the, the early first decade of the 2000s. And uh, we would write a song called El Toro, which is, and had an album. We have an album called El Toro, which is about uh, a bullfight from the perspective of the bull. So kind of, uh, kind of ironic uh, there. I remember that when they finally took me to the hospital in Spain, and it took three people to hold me down on a table so they could pry my eye open and then they could put antiseptic drops in there. But literally then the last few shows of the tour, which included the Reading Festival, um, uh, I was wearing an eye patch and I had uh, all this bandaging over my eye, which once they were able to, to work on it, it, it was much better. But... Uh, and I was able to continue performing. But, you know, it, it, <laughs> it definitely, you know, when you're a musician and you're out on the road and you get sick or something goes wrong, it doesn't matter. Life goes on. And it, it, I think, honestly, that, that may be the only time ever that I canceled a show because of injury. You know, I, I even, I, in one of my earlier sessions, I talk about uh, winging it. I had surgery on my ankle in 2013, and I just didn't I didn't cancel anything I ended up playing with my my right ankle on a on a slave pedal and just made it work that way as well so um in any case the warp tour europe a uh, very interesting uh time period for us and indeed you know again it helped us to get some exposure in europe but where we really got exposure from the warp tour and which really gave us a killer career was in australia so you know, the Warp Tour finishes in 1997. We went on to do seven weeks in Las Vegas around Thanksgiving and Christmas. So, you know, just to show you how busy we were. And I think we did a whole nother tour of the U.S. in between the end of the Warp Tour Europe and this the, the beginning of the uh, of, of our run in Las Vegas. And that might be a whole nother session to talk about road stories because that was a completely different environment um, working at... Uh, the lounge at the Desert Inn uh, for seven weeks, six nights a week. Um, 
really amazing, amazing uh, perspective on the world. Totally different. One last thing I want to see about Europe was the Reading Festival, because the Reading Festival is one of the great European music festivals, one of the legendary ones. It goes back probably to the 1960s or at least to the 70s. And that was a real treat because after, you know, being in, in these hot, dusty environments, these crappy conditions, no, you know, place to change, no hotel rooms, um, we get to the Reading Festival. And in the Reading Festival, Warp Tour had its own little tent. You know, the Reading Festival is a three-day festival. We had our own little tent for the day. Uh, that was the day my eye patch came off, I think. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, people were welcoming me back because people on the on the tour who I had known now for, for the last four months or whatever, intimately every day traveling, uh, were like, man, what happened? And, oh, you got the eye patch and the whole nine yards. But what I remember about the, the Reading Festival, in addition to there being, you know, you could go to all the main stages, there were some, some really great bands on the bill, um, the catering was unbelievable. And, you know, generally catering on these kind of tours, as I mentioned, I talked about it last time, certainly the Warp Tour on its own had very funky catering. But at the Reading Festival, they had china and silverware and incredibly delicious food and beautiful white leather couches in the catering area. And here, you know, we're sort of these dazed, road-weary, filthy ragamuffins that have been hauling ass all over the place and just, and, and you know, really uh, living on crappy sandwiches and, and whatever else. And, and, and that, <laughs> that really stands out in my mind was the food. So fast forward, it's January of 1998. And we get called by the Warp Tour people again. Hey, we're taking the tour to the Far East and Australia. You guys want to be on it. And as I mentioned in the last session, you know, we cert- we brought a certain kind of cachet to the Warp Tour. We brought the, you know, the eclectic factor to, to, to the whole festival. So, um, you know, they wanted to have us there to show off when they took the tour to these, to these, these different countries and these different regions of the world to show, hey, the Warp Tour has got, you know, is this really cool eclectic thing with all this style and, and class, you know, so to speak. So we, we leave home again and we head for New Zealand and Australia. Now, as you remember, in New Zealand and Australia, January is the, um, the height of summer. So, you know, we, 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 it's the height of summer. And uh, there was some amazing additions to the Warp Tour lineup for this tour. Uh, the Vandals were there again, and Social, uh, no, Social Distortion wasn't there. Uh, the Vandals, I think Blink was on it, Boss Tones, um, and uh, Pennywise, of course. But they, but there, but there were some really great bands. 311 was on the tour, and I had heard them, heard about them. Uh, you know, they were, they were really hot in the U.S., so I got to see them every day for the month that we were traveling. Um, some great, uh, Australian bands, of course, were added uh, to the to the list, including uh, the Living End, who are probably one of the biggest success stories to come out of Australia rock um, in the last you know twenty years or so. And they were sort of a, ostensibly a rockabilly trio, but sort of turned themselves into a huge pop band, a band called Body Jar. And uh, there was also uh, this band called De Totenhosen, and they were a German band, and I can't remember if they. I think they were on the Australia tour. They were pretty crazy. 
and totally unknown outside of Germany. They were one of those bands that's huge in Germany and not necessarily in many other places around the world, or maybe big in other parts of Europe. De Totenhosen, which means the dead pants, which again would be a really dumb name in English, but I guess it was really cool in German. So we go to Australia. We show up. The first place is actually New Zealand. We did a gig in New Zealand, and we get put up you know, of course, once again, nobody tells us what's going to be happening on this tour. But you're going to Australia, you're going to New Zealand, going to Japan, you're going to Hawaii. You know, these were the stops. So we're all excited. We get there. First, first stop is New Zealand, and we get we get sent to a campground. And there are these cabins these with bunk beds inside. Uh, this is where you guys are staying tonight. Once we get to Australia, it'll be totally different. Okay, cool. So it's the height of summer. The first day I get totally sunburned because, you know, there's, at least at the time, there were big holes in the ozone layer down there. I get insanely sunburned. So I, I begin the tour in a very bad way. The show goes cool. We head over to Australia and we get on these big coaches, these touring coaches. Now, these are not tour buses. These are like regular buses. And that's how we're going to travel in Australia. So we, we, we get on the buses at the airport and we drive to the first venue. And the first venue is a field. No surprise, we've been through this before. But now this is literally a field next to the ocean. And uh, they say, okay, everybody, um, underneath bus number one are um, your tents. You're going to be setting those up uh, right here. This is the area. And under bus number two are your foam mattresses. Uh, have at it. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? So... It turns out that the entire Australia Warp Tour, we camped in tents. I mean, I didn't think it could get <laughs> any any more low budge than the U.S., but it did. And uh, so we, you know, we had to set up our tents. And again, for the punk rock dudes who, who you know, where wardrobe is not really an issue, uh, that's fine. But imagine waking up in a tent. It's already broiling hot by 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever, um, and, and, and we've got a RCR that is, has to figure out how to get our hair together and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we made it work and, and, uh, it was a, it was a great, um, it was a, a great experience. Um, one thing I do want to mention, a great Australia story, which I'm also going to post a video of something very similar, uh, relates to Pennywise and their guitar player Fletcher. And if anybody here is a fan of that band, um, remember, I, I mentioned them in the last um, in the last session, and we talked about how they were a little bit terrifying. Well, the terrifying part of Pennywise was this this guitar player named Fletcher. I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Drogue, Drogue, um, which reminds me of the Droogs from uh, the movie Clockwork Orange, uh, which Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, he's the leader of this gang, and uh, he referred to his his friends as his droogs. Um, that was his sort of his mates or whatever. And if you remember Dim from that gang of droogs, that's a little bit what Fletcher was like. Hopefully he's not listening to this. It's going to come hunt me down. But he, he was a very cool guy, but he was extremely intimidating. He was a big guy, big beard, kind of long hair, kind of has a mountain man look to him. And he, when you put a guitar in his hand, it was loud and it was very uh, heavy. And 
he was an intense guy and he was a very intimidating guy and he used to like to mess with people. And, you know, you didn't want to get on his bad side. If you were on his good side, it was cool. But he would do crazy, crazy, crazy things. One of the crazy things that he had done a few years earlier, of course, probably a lot of you remember the show Love Line. That was a radio show that started out in Los Angeles. It was on the, on the station K-Rock and then it became a, a nationally syndicated program. Dr. Drew, of course, was the expert on, uh, uh, you know, uh, sex and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And they would have people call up and talk about their sexual issues, um, you know, or, or whatnot. Ask any question you want. So the idea was that, you know, Loveline was this program where anything could happen because at least, you know, people would talk about their most intimate things and they would have a, a co-host with Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew was the serious medical doctor and the co-host was always kind of a goof, K-Rock DJ type guy. So the original host, I think Adam Carolla did it for a long time. Previously, the original host on Loveline was a guy named Ricky Rackman who was kind of a fixture on the LA scene. He used to um, do uh, Headbangers Ball on MTV, he was kind of a, a known for being a metal guy. But he was around when Royal Crown was coming up. He was doing Loveline in the 90s. And there's a famous incident when Pennywise, so they would have guests on Loveline who would also contribute, you know, their own thoughts to the callers and their sex problems and whatever. And, and it was often very funny and, and ridiculous. So one night, and this is a few years before the Warp Tour, but this was the stuff of legend about Fletcher Drug. So... Pennywise is on Loveline, and Fletcher has been drinking heavily because he did do that a lot as well, and that often exacerbated his his behaviors. He, they're in the studio, and all of a sudden Fletcher starts to get sick because he's done so much drinking. Now this is all live on the air, so rather than just running out of the studio and finding a bathroom or a trash can, Fletcher decides that he is going to throw up on whoever happens to be there. And he literally barricades the door. He's a big, big guy. And he starts puking on people in the middle of Loveline out of nowhere. And, you know, I I remember talking to Ricky Rackman about this because Ricky Rackman hosted some shows in 1995, 1996 in LA that Royal Crown Review were on. And, you know, he said Fletcher had him like pinned up against the wall and just puke all over. Okay, bye. Yes, uh, Love Line is over. It's not our fault. We have a big, ugly man in our guitar band. Get out of here. And, uh, yes. Get the f*** out. Can I the f*** out. Can I the f*** out. Can I turn 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 the f*** uh, it's a couple of minutes, and it's it's disgusting, but it's it's pretty funny. So Fletcher would do these kind of stunts, and he was always getting into trouble. And I remember that Pennywise had a, ma- a road manager named Stuart, who was always there because you know we traveled with Pennywise. They were on every Warp tour that we ever did, and we would go out. You know, sometimes if you were in a city, you'd go get in a cab and go somewhere to a club or whatever. And Fletcher was always getting into trouble, and. At the end, Stuart, the road manager, would be there with a, a handful of, of bills in whatever currency we were in, you know, reeling off the bills and paying off somebody, giving somebody money to, to, um, to uh, you know, 
make up for Fletcher's damage. So in any case, flash to the end of the Australian part of the Warp Tour, and uh, we are all in a place called the Hi-Fi Bar, celebrating the end of the tour. The tour wrapped up in, in outside Melbourne, uh, or Melbourne, as you should say if you're from Australia. Uh, and even if you're not from Australia, that's the correct pronunciation. Melbourne. Just think of B-I-N, M-E-L-B-I-N. That's how you should say it. Trust me, ask any Australian. They do not like when we go Melbourne or Melbourne. Uh, So we're all in Melbourne, and the tour concludes in Australia. We're about to head to Japan and then Hawaii. So the last, this is the the last night, everybody goes to this club called the Hi-Fi Bar, which is a pretty well-known club. Royal Crown Review actually, uh, a little bit later on down the road, did a live album at the Hi-Fi Bar. And there's a big jam, and we all are there hanging out, and uh, it comes to kind of the end of the night, and they call me up to play, which was really cool. Uh, They call the swing guy up. I, of course, am steeped in rock and roll and punk. I think I mentioned I had been in heavy rock bands and punk bands earlier in my life. Um, So I love that kind of music, and and, and I'm very comfortable playing it. And uh, um, so we, we start off, we play Blitzkrieg Bop by, you know, the Ramones. Okay, cool. And it's sort of basically most of Pennywise now and me on the drums. And the place is packed to the to the roof, okay? Not only is it people from the tour, it's a lot of the fans and skate, skate punk kids and all kinds of people. And it's mayhem. So, of course, at the end of the night, Pennywise always has to play their song Bro Him, which is a tribute to their original, I think their original bass player who died, and uh, so they wrote a bro hymn to their bro. And we go into this song. And, of course, the song is a, a total, you know, fist-pumping anthem, punk rock anthem. I played some of it in the last session. Uh, so you can go check that out. And now the song is in full boil. What happens is, you know, it starts off, right? And then it goes, at the end, when things really get big, it goes to double time. So it goes to punk rock double time. So it goes, you know, that kind of super fast double time thing. So I I have watched Pennywise play this song a thousand times on the Warp Tour, and I know exactly what's going to happen, and I go into it. Now, at this point, the entire stage is filled with people, literally, the band is playing, there's people running around, people are crowd surfing on stage, so not only in the audience, and I look up and like Josh Freeze surfs by me, you know, and I'm playing, it's like, man, I'm on stage with Pennywise, and this is totally awesome, and like, this is such a great moment. So we get to the end of the song, and of course it's, whoa, 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 into the big final chord, which of course is going to last for like two minutes, and and we're in this huge final chord, and all of a sudden I look up, and Fletcher, and by the way, all of the gear at this jam was provided by one of the local Australian bands that had been on the tour. So this is not Pennywise's gear, this is not the Warp Tour's gear. This is, belongs to these, these young kids. I look up in the midst of all this pandemonium, and I see like a 10-foot wave cascading down towards me, Fletcher with the guitar, coming down to smash it onto the drum set. And I was just like, 
I think I'm going to die right now. I, you know, it, it, the guy was already about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and he's just at full bore wailing this guitar over his head, smashes it down onto the drums about four or five times. Guitar flies around, drums fly around. It's total chaos. Somehow I survived the ordeal. And all I remember is about a half hour later, everyone's left the club. There's Stuart <laughs> rolling off bill after bill, you know, basically paying this band for having destroyed all their gear. But that certainly is a highlight. And I, I found a video of Fletcher doing pretty much exactly the same thing in 2006. Uh, and so I will post that in the show notes so you can watch Fletcher do his thing, smash the guitar. And literally, I thought it was, I thought when I watched the video, oh, this is it. This is the night. Somebody had the video camera rolling. It wasn't the night I was there. But it's a, almost exactly a replay of that. So we move on from Australia. Um, and we head to Japan. Japan, you know, uh, I think I'd already been there a couple of times with Royal Crown Review. It was just a tight couple of days. I think we had two shows. Um, I don't really remember anything all of that memorable from the show, except that I got some horrible food poisoning uh, from uh, uh, from eating some tonkatsu, which is uh, pork, basically like um, if you imagine chicken fried steak in in our in this country, it's chicken fried pork or it's it's pork fried. I don't know <laughs> pork fried steak, chicken fried pork. It's it's deep fried pork. Uh, and it's a very popular, um, dish. You can have chicken katsu, pork katsu, but, but the pork is, it's, it's very popular. They actually have restaurants that just specialize in this vibe. Well, I ate something funky. It was either that or some kind of curry. I got horrific food poisoning. And, um, when we flew from Japan to Hawaii, which was our final stop on this tour, I was in agony. We were of course on Korean airlines. So the food they had was like, unidentifiably bizarre Korean food. But I do remember that I've got to fly in the top first class bubble of of a 747. You know how they have the upper deck. Uh, and for some reason, I ended up up there, which was a good a good thing. So we, we fly to Hawaii. And um, I, I am from Hawaii. And so uh, this was probably the one and only time that I, since I left Hawaii originally in, I graduated high school in 84. I was back for a year before I moved to LA uh, in 1990. Um, but this, I think, is the only show I've really played in Hawaii, uh, a proper show. Royal Crown Review never played another gig in Hawaii. But it was beautiful because we were out near the North Shore in an area called Mokulea, which is, the mountains are right there you know of course we're in a field um but it was it was just spectacular and it was i was so proud my parents came and god only knows what they thought of the warp tour but then i was able to stay in in hawaii for a little while after that because that was it for that tour so um i just want to add one more couple of, of codas to to this uh because again i we're we're hauling along here um we then did the 1999 Warp Tour in the U.S. They only went to Australia twice, and they only went to Europe once. I think in 2015, 
Europe is now back on the schedule again. I don't know anything about it because it's very far from my mind. But um, those were sort of very interesting experiments for the Warp Tour. And, you know, I have to say, just to finish up about Australia, that we, we had, we really knocked people out in Australia because they had not had the swing resurgence the way we had in the U.S. So there were no other bands doing this. Nobody, we really came out of left field in Australia. And as a result of our being on the Warp Tour down there and being intense and, you know, uh, all of that, we ended up, Royal Crown Review ended up having a fantastic 10, 15 year run in Australia. And maybe, who knows, maybe one day we'll get back down there again. Uh, but it was, it was great. And we ended up, you know, really having a substantial career in Australia. Um, we toured a lot down there. I, I think I've been down there 15 times now. And I just, I love that country. It's, it's a great place and a lot of great friends down there. So the 1999 Warp Tour. So 1998, rest of it goes by, we get the call again, hey, do you guys want to do some of the Warp Tour in 99? And we didn't do the whole tour. I think we, out of a maybe five or six week tour, we maybe did half of it, about three weeks. Uh, I can say that the touring conditions were much better because by that point we were successful enough that we had our own tour bus, so we didn't have to share a tour bus with anybody. And we often had day rooms at that point, sometimes actually had hotels. And the food They'd really gotten that together. So the catering was great. It was like a whole tent for the catering now instead of just a one crappy roach coach. And the food was was excellent. Um, but that said, the musical aspect of it was, was different. It was just a very different vibe. What was different about it primarily, first of all, the music was very, very different. Um, uh, the, a lot of the, the uh, third wave ska was now sort of past its prime. Uh, so there, there were much more kind of rap-oriented bands. And believe it or not, Ice-T was on the Warp Tour, um, the legendary rapper Ice-T. Um, Eminem was on the Warp Tour, and he was just starting to really become the superstar that he then became uh, in the early 2000s. Um, a band called Suicidal Tendencies. They were sort of the, they, I think they were the Pennywise of that tour. They were the kind of the, the legendary punk rock, a hardcore California style band. Um, and uh, a band called Seven Dust was on the tour, much heavier now, heavy, heavy kind of sounding rock. And there were a lot more of those really very heavy bands. I think there's a lot more of that on the Warp Tour for the last sort of 10, 15 years or so. Um, and uh, interestingly, there was this band that no one had ever heard of called the Black Eyed Peas. I swear to God. Uh, they did not yet have Fergie, the, the female singer, with them. Uh, it was Will I Am and a couple other guys. It was three main guys. And they had their own tour bus that was like had been wrapped with their their band photo and their album cover. So their whole tour bus was one giant advertisement for that band. And again, this is one of those moments where it's like, who the hell are these guys and what are they doing on this tour? Because as you know, the Black Eyed Peas sound is very different. Um, you know, They were doing a lot more sort of rap-oriented stuff at that time. But it was really different than, than what, was, what, was, uh, what was there. But it's sort of like, you know, aha, they went on to become the Black Eyed Peas. And I sort of, in the last session, talked about how bands like Blink-182 and um, Sugar Ray, you know, were sort of these unknown bands, or they were about as known as we were. 
And by the end of the, their time on the Warp Tour, they 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 really were on their way to becoming superstars uh, to a very much more mainstream audience. So so that was interesting. But what was missing, what was gone, was the 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 family vibe. And at least for us, and maybe it was just that our, you know, cherry had been popped in 97. It wasn't so new. It wasn't so exciting. Um, you know, Eminem would have security people. Uh, and if you stood at the side of the stage and took a photo, they would come and rip the film out of your camera. You know, this is before digital, before everybody had a digital camera on their phone, basically. Nobody's cell phone took pictures at that time. So, uh you know, it, it, it was no longer let's all get to know each other. The Black Eyed Peas, uh, Ice-T, Eminem, they all traveled separately. They all had hotel rooms. They didn't intermingle with any of the other musicians on the tour. Also, I remember that the, the Midway where you sold merchandise was now full of corporate sponsors. And it was all surf skate stuff, but there was so much free swag that these companies were all giving away that um, the ability for us to sell merchandise was greatly diminished. Um, and there was, it was bigger. There were so many bands. So whereas, you know, we had kind of been sort of the new fresh face on the scene and one of the darlings of this whole thing. Now, you know, it was, it was just a different, it was just a different vibe. There, there wasn't that, uh, family environment. So we did our three weeks and that was, that was kind of it. Oh, and I, when I looked up the Warp Tour on Wikipedia, and I know that's not the best source for true information, but supposedly Will I Am from the Black Peace said, we were the first non-punk band to be on the Warp Tour. Well, we know who the first non-punk band was on the Warp Tour, and that would be Royal Crown Review. Ha ha. All right. So I just want to finish up telling another couple of cool stories uh, about what came out of the Warp Tour. And I'll be quick, I promise. But I did mention in the last session that uh, that I was there the night that Travis Barker played his first gig with Blink-182. And that, I believe, also happened. It was, I don't know exactly when this tour happened. It was either 98 or 99. But again, the, we, we, we benefited because Golden Voice, the promoter, and Kevin Lyman, who ran the Warp Tour, would do other smaller package tours, and we got invited on, on a bunch of those. In one of the tours we did, the headliner was the band Madness. The, you know, they would be called a second-wave ska band from, from the early 80s. They were one of the British royalty of ska, like the Specials or the English Beat or the Selector. So they had kind of reunited and we're doing this tour of the West Coast. And also on that bill was uh, Blink-182, Dancehall Crashers, I think Hepcat were on that tour. Um, I'm trying to remember. Some of the Warped Tour bands, but obviously it focused a little bit more on, um, you know, on the ska vibe. So one of the bands on that tour was uh, a band called the Aquabats, and I did talk about them. They had, they were a you know, not quite as well known, but definitely part of that Southern California surf, ska, punk rock scene. They used to wear, you know, matching board shorts and matching um, brightly colored rash guards and then wrestler masks. So it was like they were like superhero skate ska dudes. And um, their drummer was a guy named Travis Barker, who was very quiet, very non-assuming, had no tattoos, uh, was a very good drummer. His style was was very uh, 
militarily, you know, he, he, he'd obviously come up in, uh, in the, the world of drum corps, as had um, Chad Sexton, the drummer for 311. And, um, oh, I'm going to tell one more quick story about that, too. Uh, so, anyway, uh, the, 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 the drummer, the original drummer for Blink, had to leave this tour and had a family emergency. And um, they were like, well, who's going to sit in? Who's going to take over? Because Blink had to play the show that night. So they got Travis Barker. And I just remember standing there watching Travis with Blink-182 going, this is a completely different band with this drummer. And this is this is probably going to go somewhere. And of course, you know, the rest is history. Uh, I remember the, the I saw Travis a couple of years later at a NAMM show in LA. And, you know, we were friendly. We weren't close friends, but we hung out a bit. And that was kind of the last time I saw him because... You know, he lives in a, in a whole other universe now, and I'm not really on the punk rock scene at all anymore, per se. But, um, you know, just sort of touching base or whatever. And so that was cool. The other amazing sit-in story from the Warp Tour that I neglected to mention is that in Australia, uh, we a bunch of guys were out playing football, uh, you know, because there was a lot of downtime to kill every day before the show started, and then while you were waiting for your turn for your 30 or 35-minute set, on stage. And Chad Sexton, really cool guy, um, great drummer, also kind of come from the drum corps scene. And it was great watching 311 every day on that tour. They were, they were a really great band. But he fell down playing football and broke his wrist. I'm kidding you not. And their set, 311 set, was going to happen in, you know, maybe two hours. And so um, they got Josh Freeze to sit in and I kid you not, you know, probably many of you drummers out there know Josh Freeze. He uh, kind of has played in a lot of great bands. Um, Infectious Grooves was the first time I really heard him. But he's played with Devo. He's played with Nine Inch Nails. He's played with Sting. He's played with, uh, you know, so many different bands. I, 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 And he's one of the, the main session guys in Los Angeles. So if you know about drumming, you know about Josh Freeze. But he was also the band for the Vandals, who were this raggedy-ass band where Warren, the lead singer, used to run around naked all the time on this warp Tour. So he sits in with two hours preparation, and I hate to say it, but played this show better than Chad Sexton because, look, Josh is one of the great the great drummers, young drummers in in the rock and punk genre um, you know, uh, of, of the last probably 30 years. I mean, he's, he's top, top level guy. So that was an amazing experience. And then he played both the Vandal set and the 311 set for the rest of the, of the time in Australia. So getting to see stuff like that and just being around that, you know, the whole thing was, was, was very cool. And the last little story I have, uh, one of the other gigs that came our way, this is probably 1998, MTV, again, we were, because of our, we, we had a sort of quote-unquote hit with Barflies at the Beach, MTV would call us to do some of their different live concert broadcasts they had. And they, they would do a thing called Boarding for Breast Cancer. And one thing I should mention about the Warp Tour before I finish is that they have been a terrific philanthropic organization, and they've raised a lot of money for a lot of good causes. And, um, you know, that's, you know, again, kudos to, to Kevin Lyman, the organizer, for um, not just using this... Uh, incredible phenomenon he's created to make money, but also to to uh, put some of that money towards good causes. So that that was a, a great aspect to the Warp Tour, and I'm still I'm sure pretty sure that they are still very involved in that. But um, 
So MTV hosted a thing called Boarding for Breast Cancer. This was when, I don't know if you guys remember, Kennedy was the, was the VJ. Uh, she was sort of their most popular VJ. She was kind of a sarcastic, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe her. Uh, but um, she was a popular VJ at the time. And she was the host. And the, the lineup was pretty stellar. Um, it was the Foo Fighters, Moby, the Specials, uh, the Offspring, and Royal Crown Review, if you can believe that. So we were up at a California ski resort, Big Bear or something like that. It's the middle of winter. They brought a stage up, all the MTV cameras. And again, the whole idea was sort of the, you know, snowboarder, X Games kind of vibe along with these bands. And they broadcast parts of it on MTV. And what I will say about that, again, was getting to see the Foo Fighters up close, uh, you know, so early after Taylor Hawkins had joined again, this maybe was 98, the same year we went to Europe. It was just later in the year. Um, and, you know, check out all those other bands, of course. But um, the, the the tour bus was like, it, it was like a school bus, like one of those old kind of almost Partridge family type school buses. And the stage was sort of attached to the side of it and they would fold down the stage and, and you could hang out behind the stage in the school bus part. And I remember we did our show, you know, our show, our show. And of course we were through everything we had into it. This is a really big opportunity for us. And I did my big drum solo, you know, on Hey Pachuco, which always ended our set 35 minutes of just pistol whipping the audience into submission. Basically we're drenched in sweat. I turn around and behind me, on the tour bus are both Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins, you know, watching my friggin' drum solo, which is pretty cool. And again, both of those guys are now living in planets that I probably will never inhabit. Um, but it just was a cool thing to to know that, you know, uh, and that was a cool thing about the Warp Tour is that um, a lot of people saw me get to do what it is that I do. And um, that was, uh, you know, it's it's one of the great things about being on the road. And it was one of the great aspects of my career at that time. My career is a bit of a different animal these days. It's not based around performance, at least touring performance as much as it used to be. But um, that is going to do it for my Warp Tour extravaganza. I hope you've stuck with me for the whole uh, double session expose of uh of this period of of being on the road and what that experience was like and what the music world was like i hope you've enjoyed it and um yeah keep keep listening next week there'll be another edition of the daniel glass show probably talking about something very different so if you have any comments if you yourself have been on the warp tour or you went to the warp tour or you saw any of these bands please feel free to contact me on my website or uh, go to the Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page, uh, hit me up there, and um, keep listening, and have, have a great one. We'll see you next time around. Peace. Peace.